Sales taxes are a major part of our lives and the state revenue toolkit. Today is the fifth anniversary of the groundbreaking case of South Dakota v. Wayfair, when the United States Supreme Court made a pivotal ruling on June 21st, 2018, allowing states to assert their authority in collecting sales tax from remote sellers based on economic presence. But how did this decision mark a significant shift in tax policy? And what were the implications for businesses, consumers, and state governments? Hello, and welcome to The Direction. My name is Kyle Hoyan, and I will be your host today. And joining us is Jared Walzak, Vice President of State Projects. Together, we'll dissect South Dakota v. Wayfair, explore its historical context, and dive into the far-reaching consequences it has had on state revenue collection and the future of e-commerce taxation. Jared, welcome. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to be with you on your first show, uh, hosting The Deduction. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited. A little nervous, but thankfully I have a pro like yourself today uh, to be here with me to discuss the very exciting uh, Wayfair decision and how it's impacted all of our lives. Yeah, it is a big decision. Uh, it's an important one. Not everyone's heard about it, but it is one that very much affects uh, how we pay taxes, how much tax revenue is collected. It's one of those decisions that really has been huge for state governments, uh, even if maybe the average person out there hasn't heard about it. And yeah, so Jared, before we get too far in, I, I did kind of want to tell a personal story real quick. Um, back in 2017, I was a political science major at Grove City College and was still obviously searching for my path and what I wanted to do. And just one Tuesday afternoon in my state and local government class, our professor, Dr. Coulter, announced that we'd be having an expert on state tax policy speak. And it was none other than you, our guest today, Jared. And that was the first time I had heard of the Tax Foundation, and it really intrigued me. You did you gave a really interesting presentation. There's so much in tax policy and state tax policy specifically that is like very intriguing and very nuanced. And it's just a very small world that I'd be here hosting this podcast today with you after all that time. Well, I'm really glad I didn't scare you away. I've had the privilege of uh, speaking in classes at a variety of colleges and universities, and it's always really enjoyable to take some of these things we talk about uh, in the tax policy world that we talk about with state legislatures and bring them also to students, uh, many of whom will be working in professions that affect taxation in the future. I, I feel like that is a very exciting thing that you get to do. And I'm wondering, do you, do you feel like you have to bring a totally different skill set to that than maybe when you're presenting in a legislature versus a classroom, or is it similar? I think some of it's similar. Uh, we talk about some of the same principles, but often I will be spending some more time talking about the procedures in ways that maybe legislators have already captured, that they understand, obviously, some of the policy implications students may be at a different level. Sometimes they may have a stronger economic uh, background than some legislators who, frankly, some are tax experts, some aren't. Uh, but they may not understand the legislative processes. They may not understand all the policy implications. It's always interesting. Any audience you go to, uh, you need to make sure that you're presenting it in a way that everyone gleans something from it, but also that you're respecting your audience because they do bring some knowledge to the subject. It's funny to think that Potentially, you know, some students may know a little bit more on an economic side or have a little bit more experience in some places. I think that's a very, uh, it's an odd situation when that happens. But um, today, what we are here to discuss, to get back to the point, 
is the fifth year anniversary of South Dakota v. Wayfair. And we are actually recording on June 21st, 2023, which is five years to the day from when the decision was handed down, which was June 21st, 2018. Uh, I don't think five years ago I could have anticipated being the podcast host of the Tax Foundation. I certainly wouldn't have expected that. I was just a, a lowly intern at the Tax Foundation when this came down. Um, while I was lucky enough to intern at the Tax Foundation and kind of get some insight into the Wayfair case, um, it's been five years since then. So I certainly have missed some things and don't remember some things. And I think it's it's a case that's affected a lot of people's lives and wallets, but it's something they may not have heard a lot about over time. So, uh, Jared, why do you think people should care about this decision in this case that they've probably never heard of. Yeah, some of the things that affect us most are things that perhaps the average person really hasn't heard of and doesn't need to pay attention to. If you hear Wayfair, you're probably thinking about a firm that sells home goods. Um, in fact, for me, it's kind of the opposite. I, you know, when I was working on this five years ago, uh, I thought of it pretty much exclusively as this court case. And of course, I'd be writing about it, I'd be researching on it. Uh, doing a lot of searches online, and suddenly I was getting all of these ads for furniture. And I didn't need furniture. And now I'm at a stage of my life where I'm getting married and uh, looking at that, that, that furniture and suddenly thinking, it's actually kind of strange that I've thought about this as a court case for five years. There is a company on the other side of it as well. But there's a lot of companies on the other side of it. Essentially, what the Wayfair decision does, um, it changes economic nexus. Uh, it, it allows economic nexus to be sufficient for remote sellers to have to comply with state and local sales tax laws to collect and remit. So in the old days, you had different nexus standards, what was called physical presence standard. And if you did not have a physical presence in that state, you were not required to collect and remit sales tax on the sales of goods that you might be shipping into those states. Now, it didn't mean that those were untaxed transactions, at least theoretically, Consumers were expected to remit use tax, but you can imagine that didn't happen very often. Compliance was very low. States tried a number of different ways to establish nexus, click-through nexus, cookie nexus. It was a kind of wild west of states trying to figure out a way to do this. And the Wayfair decision fundamentally said, no, if there is a sufficient level of contact with the state, if there's enough sales into the state, then a remote seller can be required to collect and remit sales tax. And that's a big deal. It takes e-commerce, it takes a lot of industries and puts them into the sales tax collections business for the, for the first time. And uh, we've, we've seen the effect. It means that every time you go online and buy something, almost certainly sales tax is being collected for your state. Jared, I am wondering, uh, there's this complicated term that you're using for some people, Nexus. I know for an expert like you, uh, it's certainly not as complicated, but I want to slow it down for a second and really just try to understand and break that down for uh, for our average citizen. Um, when you're saying economic Nexus, what, I think what you're really saying is, is whether there is a physical presence, whether there's a building in a state, whether it's whether something is actually there, like what ties the economic activity to the state and how they they tax it. So is it how does that exactly work when you're saying economic nexus? I think that could be a little confusing for people. Yeah, it's actually the opposite of that. Uh, essentially, nexus is the threshold question of whether an individual or a business has sufficient contacts with a state 
that it can be subject to its tax authority. Uh, so you have physical presence nexus. Uh, that standard is that you're doing something there. You have a brick and mortar facility there. You have employees there. You have something that puts you in that state physically. Economic nexus is the idea that you have activity economically there, that you have sales there, that you, know, you are generating revenue from there. And for the sales tax, we always had physical presence standards. So you had to have some sort of operations there. And states tried to find ways within this standard to capture some of those remote sellers. So they said, well, you know what? If you have a website and you're putting cookies on the computers of people in our state, you have physical presence. I didn't think that was a very good argument, but they were right to want to be able to bring these companies in. And now under the Wayfair decision, reversing some previous decisions, National Bellis Hess, Quill, um, you know, we now have economic presence. The idea that simply because you are transacting in that state, that you can have nexus on that basis. Now, there's still some other requirements. Uh, there's still Commerce Clause considerations. So uh, not everyone who transacts is going to be subject to this. But you know, within some safe harbors, within some thresholds, you do not have to be in the state to have to collect and remit on behalf of that state. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think it's one of those things where even myself, as you're saying, like I kind of had it backwards. It's And that, that demonstrates kind of what people maybe do or don't understand about what is going on in this Wayfair decision. And I heard you mention the Quill case, and I believe Wayfair overturned the precedent set by the Quill case. Could you just maybe dive into the background of what was leading up to Wayfair and, and how we got to where we are today? Sure. I mean, this has been an issue for a really long time. We talk about this as e-commerce, but I mean, the mail order catalog, uh, Sears Roebuck, uh, you know, you know, Montgomery Ward, this issue has been around for a really long time. And there have always been transactions that in practice, the sales tax has not been collected on. Use tax should have been paid. It wasn't. Uh, so states tried to find ways to bring them in. There was also federal legislation to try to set parameters for this, the Marketplace Fairness Act, the Remote Transactions Parity Act. These were both legislative proposals in Congress that would have created this authority, but also established a framework setting some um, minimum standards that states needed to abide by, creating uniformity requirements. Honestly, a lot of things that would have made life way easier for retailers to comply with this because it would have created some uniformity in what each state's system looked like. That didn't happen. Those laws were not enacted. And eventually the court stepped in as well. Uh, like you said, in the Wayfair decision in 2018, uh, the court ruled that economic presence is sufficient. And that sets the groundwork for states to adopt these laws. In particular, there was a South Dakota law that was the test case. Um, it was designed, I think, very carefully in many respects to be the sort of case that the court would want to take up. And also the sort of you know, law that would look very good to the court that had good safe harbors, that had some pretty reasonable standards for compliance, um, you know, that sort of put everything in place so that the court could say, this is not an undue burden, that not only do we agree that it's economic nexus, but that in terms of the commerce clause, we're not imposing an undue burden on interstate commerce. Uh, since then, of course, other states have adopted laws that don't always look like the South Dakota law, or there have been additional wrinkles, and there are still open questions about whether you can go too far, I think you can, and have a situation where the law is requiring uh, undue burdens on uh, businesses that are complying with this law. Uh, but you do have this, and you have the development also of what are called marketplace facilitator laws. This wasn't originally part of the South Dakota design, but now every state with a sales tax has one, where essentially 
you have this threshold, you know, maybe it's $100,000 in sales, maybe it's something else where a seller doesn't have to collect and remit until they reach that point, but then they do have to comply with the sales tax code. But what about a situation where you're selling on a platform, uh, you know, your Amazon Marketplace, your Etsy, eBay, uh, or a lot of other things that maybe you didn't think of as platforms like Uber Eats, um, you know, a, a various, you know, delivery network companies, um, you know, um, yeah, a lot of different companies that maybe weren't originally part of the design. And the conclusion has been they have Nexus. And they will be obliged under these marketplace facilitator laws to collect and remit on their individual seller's behalf. So it reduces the number of entities complying. It means that small seller who's making some crafts perhaps doesn't need to figure out, you know, 45 states tax codes that this bigger platform company takes care of it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, but sometimes it does create problems because sometimes the seller has information about their product's taxability or various characteristics of it that the platform doesn't. And that especially matters as these facilitator laws have started to expand to cover things other than sales tax, where sometimes there are different excise taxes or privilege taxes that require information that is lodged with the actual seller and not the platform. So it gets really complex, but these are the laws that were adopted in the years following Wayfair. So it sounds like to me that the way states have gone about implementing some of these sales taxes and online taxes is that they've put a lot of burden on businesses and corporations to to sort that out. Could you could you flesh that out for me a little bit? Yeah, it has been a significant burden in some areas. Um, in most states, thankfully, there are unified sales tax bases, meaning that even if there are local taxes as well as state sales taxes, that they use this uniform base. It's the exact same one at the state level and at all of the local levels. Uh, you do a different rates. So businesses do need to comply at least with knowing where their good or service is headed and having that delivery address so that they can know the local rate and remit appropriately. But in most states, they are remitting to state government and the base is the same. You have a handful of states, three really, where there's a significant issue where local bases can be different and uh, the actual remittance is sometimes to the locality. That creates enormous compliance costs. And we see the same thing when these taxes, um, you know, the, the, these burdens go beyond the sales tax. And when you put it on online travel companies for, say, lodging taxes or resort fees, when you put tire fees on this, delivery fees, uh, other things that can be incorporated into this uh, that sometimes require you to know the tax code of each individual locality. That can be extremely difficult for businesses that are operating across the country when there's 10, you know, 10 plus thousand jurisdictions that have sales taxes and other similar taxes that might be covered under this. Uh, so that gets really complex. And then for some businesses that sell really lo low dollar items, they can find that even in the states that have this centralization and this um, unified base, it can still be very expensive. There's companies that help with this that do a lot of the compliance facilitation. Uh, but for some companies, it's a big deal. And I think for everyone, the nuances of marketplace facilitator laws are going to matter a lot. So, Jared, now that we're understanding how states have implemented, where the burdens are, and and how that is working, um, has online sales tax been a revenue boon for state governments? It really has. And it came at the right time for state governments because most states had fully implemented these laws before the pandemic hit, when obviously a lot of sales that had been in brick and mortar stores 
went online. But even if that hadn't happened, uh, there's a lot of revenue that was being foregone because states were just unable to reach most of these transactions. Uh, there was a survey done not too long ago um, by the GAO at the federal level that they got responses from 33 states, and they found that this marketplace facilitator laws and remote seller laws had increased revenues by about $23 billion in those 33 states. Now, we don't know exactly what it would be if we included all of them. I think it's safe to say it's over $30 billion a year total, maybe significantly more, but certainly over $30 billion more. That would be about 8% increase in state sales tax collections, about 3% increase in state tax collections overall. Those are really meaningful numbers, and they are persistent numbers. So Yes, uh, a lot of sales have gone online. A lot of sales are remote. That'll only increase over time. So being able to bring this back into the fold has been very big for state governments, especially during the pandemic, but I think just on an ongoing basis. Yeah, I think clearly the pandemic obviously moved everything online. So revenue is going to continue to increase over time. And I, I wonder if for some people, I think there's maybe a notion that online sales taxes could be something different or something new, or maybe it's, you know, not the same, but could, could you kind of break that down for me? This, is this a new tax? It's not, uh, but that question comes up a lot because obviously many consumers were not actually paying tax here. They should have been. It's a sales and use tax. That's the term that's used in states. Uh, you pay sales tax um, when you purchase something and the seller handles the remittance on your behalf. But if for some reason you have a transaction that would be subject to tax, that tax was not collected at the point of sale, you are obligated to remit use tax to your state. Uh, as you can imagine, that's really, really low compliance, but that's always been the requirement. You order something mail order, you're supposed to pay. You order something online, you're supposed to pay. It didn't happen. So I think a lot of people feel that this is a new tax because they're paying tax for the first time. But there's no logical reason why a sales tax should distinguish between brick and mortar and online. Uh, if anything, states really don't want to uh, disincentivize local purchasing. It really looks bad for state policymakers to say, you know what, if you purchase in our local shops, you're paying sales tax. If you buy online, no, you're, you're sales tax free. So it made a lot of sense that states did this. It creates greater parity. It's the right thing to do from a policy perspective. Uh, now, a couple of states said, you know, we're increasing our revenues. We can lower rates, maybe on the sales tax, but probably on something else. That's a great way to approach this where states did it, but there's no reason why there should have been this disparity. It's appropriate policy and it's not a new tax. You know, at the Tax Foundation, we often talk about uh, neutral taxes and, and it sounds to me like implementing, you know, an online sales tax was, you know, neutral and from a policy standard, like you're saying, a, a, a good way to go about what we needed to do to provide the parity that you're talking about. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We talk about neutrality as a principle and neutrality was violated by not having collection remittance on these online or remote transactions. We also talk about simplicity. And sometimes these new laws can violate the principle of simplicity because they can make compliance very expensive in some cases. So there's absolutely reforms to be made. There are improvements that can be made to these laws to make them simpler, to make compliance easier. But this was the right call. You want to be taxing these transactions. And so, Jared, what still needs to be done to improve sales tax collections in the states? A number of things. Um, every state has adopted a safe harbor for remote sellers, where if they have sales that are under a relatively low threshold, that they're not required to start complying with that state tax laws immediately. 
so sometimes it's a volume threshold, like $100,000 in sales. Sometimes it's a transaction threshold, like 200 sales. Sometimes it's a combination of those. Volume makes more sense. It should be the dollar amount. Uh, I would argue it should be on retail sales. If you are almost exclusively selling for wholesale, if you are doing B2B and business-to-business transactions and you're not subject to sales tax, it doesn't make sense for you to file $0 returns or to file returns based on a very small number of taxable transactions. You need a cushion period. You know, If essentially you suddenly become taxable because you've reached a threshold, it's really hard to turn on the system on day one. So some states say 30 days. I think that's reasonable doing something like that eliminating um, sale for resale from marketplace facilitator laws um, for nexus purposes. I think it's also important. There's, there's some technical things, but I think they matter. Um, yeah, platforms and sellers should be able to contract for who is responsible for collection remittance. Some sellers just can't turn off their sales tax collections very easily, or they're the only ones who have the information to do it properly. And especially as these laws have expanded well beyond sales tax to a variety of excise taxes, to license taxes, privileges, privilege taxes, it sometimes makes sense to let the seller be the one collecting and remitting even if a marketplace facilitator is involved. And as long as someone's paying, the state shouldn't care. So allowing contractually that that to be said, who pays makes sense. I also think we do need to limit the scope. This shouldn't be applying to business license taxes. It shouldn't be applying to tire fees. It shouldn't be applying to all these miscellaneous taxes that create enormous burdens when a company that really isn't directly connected to a jurisdiction has to figure out all of the local tax laws and understand details about products that they may not have. It's one thing to say, okay, is sales tax owed on this? It's another to know the level of detail that you might need to pay an excise tax or a privilege tax. Um, and then to the extent that you do have these larger facilitators paying local taxes other than the sales tax, central administration really does matter. So think about, say, online travel companies. I think they're a good example here. Maybe they are collecting and remitting the local occupancy tax or the hotel tax. Um, Maybe they're remitting a resort fee. Um, If you're doing that occupancy tax, it would be really helpful if you're remitting it at the state level, even though obviously it's going to flow to a local jurisdiction. There are a lot of local jurisdictions, and you don't want each of them to have different tax forms, different places you send it. Some of them may require you to actually put it on a paper form. Some of them may have electronic. It really makes sense to do what some states have done and say, listen, it's going to go to the right locality, but the state's going to administer it. That central administration matters in sales tax. It matters in all of these taxes where you may have significant local obligations. So those things, I think, all make sense. They're reforms that can make compliance easier. Uh, no one wins if compliance is hard and expensive. It's a deadweight loss. It honestly reduces compliance, so it probably reduces revenue for some jurisdictions where either taxes simply aren't being collected right now because it's too hard and they just hope it'll be okay, or they don't even know they're supposed to do it, or they just don't do business in certain jurisdictions. I think you see this with some of the local taxes where companies just don't do business in certain small jurisdictions if they're going to have to pay a local privilege tax to be able to do it. Um, Addressing those problems makes it a lot better, probably increases revenue, dramatically reduces compliance costs. It really is win-win. And uh, I think states are coming back and looking at this for a few years It was, you know, we adopted these laws. We don't want to come back to the table. It's working. It's fine. Now I think there's a recognition five years out that it's time to take a fresh look. They did the right thing. 
the Wayfair decision was good, but it was a bit of a rush job after Wayfair. Every state rushed into the gap to adopt not only the remote seller laws, but the marketplace facilitator laws. And some of them could look a lot better with a little greater scrutiny and the benefit of hindsight of five years of experience. And here at the Tax Foundation, I know that we are often talking about trade-offs and you know how tax policy works is you know there's you're talking about these 60 40 you know like is this better is this better and i think when you're talking about that like what you said with the compliance burden is it's just the burden of of and stress that's put on businesses by all of this is just not worth the cost because it, it people can't can't win businesses can't win and it's not great for the economy or for the government yeah and again i think the remote seller laws and the marketplace facilitator laws are good things and the compliance with those when they are done right is not unreasonable though there are improvements that can be made to streamline that for everyone but there are the edge cases there are the industries that are really fitting into this relatively poorly and there are just some tweaks that can be made that reduce costs uh, for especially some smaller businesses or those that have limited sales in a state that make it a whole lot easier to comply with local taxes. These would be win-win. And I think this is a great opportunity five years out to strike a better balance. One that honestly isn't really trading off revenue for simplicity because many of these reforms might actually increase compliance by making compliance so much easier. So, Jared, as we close out, I just want to give you a chance to plug anything you're working on right now or the state team or where can people find you on social media? Well, it's a busy time of year. Um, you know, most states are wrapping up or have wrapped up their legislative session. So it's been another year of many states offering uh, tax reform and tax relief. We saw further individual income tax cuts. Uh, corporate income tax cuts, a number of really good structural reforms to uh, business taxes. Uh, states are still very much in a competitive mindset, and that's great. So we've been writing about that, talking about some of the changes, uh, helping states understand what their options are. And as we look forward to the summer and you know, the planning for next year's session, we will be putting a lot of material out on our website, taxfoundation.org, about what priorities states should have to make their tax codes more competitive. We're probably in a situation where revenues are plateauing or even declining from these really high peaks that they've had in recent years. So you may see a decline in additional rate reductions, but there's an opportunity to get the structure right now. So we're going to be writing about that. Uh, we'll do that on our website. I'll be you know, talking about some of these things as the developments occur on social media. Um, uh, I'm at Jared Walzak uh, on Twitter, but we will be discussing a lot of these things as a team uh, with the public and with lawmakers over the coming months. Jared, thank you for joining us today on this fifth anniversary podcast. Please follow and check out all the work from our state team and from Jared. And thank you for being a part of the show today. Well, thank you for having me. 